At our Christmas service a couple of weeks ago, if you were not here, I told you that God wants us to have peace. Did you know that? God wants us to have peace. And I read to you from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, which says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It is Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of what? Prince of Peace, right? God wants us to have peace. So Jesus then, the Messiah, God's Holy One, brings peace with God. That's the message of Christmas, that Jesus Christ brings peace with God. And I like all of the names that I see here in this passage. His name is Prince of Peace. That's who He is. But His name is also Wonderful Counselor. His name is also Mighty God. His name is also Everlasting Father. And it was interesting to me as we went through this passage that Isaiah actually uses four different names for Jesus Christ right here in this one verse. Four different names in this one verse. But did you know that the Bible refers to Jesus with many other names? In fact, if you were to do just a cursory look across the pages of Scripture, that you would find that there are no less than 200 different names or titles given to Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture. The book of Revelation, I'm sure many of you know this, calls him the Alpha and the what? The Omega. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega, says the book of Revelation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the bright and morning star. You sang this morning that he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. He's the Word of God. He's the Root of David. All of these things from the pages of just the book of Revelation alone. He has many names. He has many names. In fact, if you were to take a look at the Gospels, you would see that Jesus himself refers to himself as the way, the truth, and what else? The life. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the Bible says. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He says he's the great shepherd. He says he's the bread of life. He's the son of God. He says that he is the living word. All of these things, all of these names, and many, many others to describe the person of Jesus Christ. But friends, I want you to know that by whichever name Scripture calls him, the truth is that not only is that Jesus Christ is salvation. That's who Jesus Christ is. No matter what word Scripture uses to describe Him, the truth of the matter is that Jesus Christ is salvation, and salvation is only to be found in Jesus Christ. He's the way. Did you know that every spiritual blessing comes in the name of Jesus Christ? Every spiritual blessing comes in the name of Jesus Christ. That's where we find our salvation. That's where it all begins for us. It's in His name that we find forgiveness of sins. It's in His name that every knee, the Bible tells us, will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It all begins with the name of Jesus Christ. It's a very, very powerful name. Very powerful. And preachers were at one time very concerned with preaching and exalting the name of Christ. That was the point of their message, to preach and exalt the name of Christ. And as we make our way through the book of Acts, you're going to see that Peter and Philip and Barnabas and Paul all preached the name of Jesus. That's what the Scripture tells us. And you're also going to see that many of the early church members actually gave their lives and yielded up their very lives for the name of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, I do have to say that I'm not 
sure how many preachers and teachers today are still that concerned with exalting and preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Think about that. I fear that many people, many preachers, may be more concerned about their own names and their own reputations and their own success than they are about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I can remember one time, it's been nearly 20 years ago now, that my wife and I were attending an event where the preacher said from the pulpit that it was his dream that one day he would walk into a funeral service wearing a white sequined cover suit and he would walk up to the casket and lay his hands on the casket and command the deceased to rise up and walk. I wonder, was he concerned with exalting the name of Jesus Christ? Who do you think that he was concerned with exalting? I mean, a white sequined suit? <laughs> First of all, it's hideous, right? I mean, who's... <laughs> Let me just tell you, don't sit under the instruction of a preacher who walks in a white sequined suit. Just, just a little nugget for you. <laughs> but think about that, friends. The faithful preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned with exalting the name of Jesus Christ. That is the responsibility of the preacher of the gospel. The faithful preacher should always be more concerned, listen to me, with the spiritual depth of the people to which God has entrusted him. He should be more concerned with the spiritual depth of the people who attend his church. He should be more concerned with exalting the kingdom of God than he is his own reputation and his own empire. It's my prayer that preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ, and that exalting the great name of Christ and exalting His kingdom will once again be the greatest passion and the greatest burden in the hearts of the preachers who stand in the pulpits of America. Isn't that your prayer? Don't you hope that for the church of God? Well, for those of you who may be visiting, maybe your first time, our approach to Scripture here at Root River Church is what we call expository and sequential. And what that means is that we start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and we just work our way all the way through it from front to back, doing our very best to put it in its proper historical and grammatical context. Sometimes we'll take a look at the original Greek language so that we can get the most out of the passage that we possibly can. But after several weeks now away for Christmas break and things like that, we're going to make our way back to the book of Acts this morning. So we've been in the book of Acts now for a couple of months. And just to, to refresh the memory of those of you who have been with us the whole time as we've made our way through the book of Acts, we're only in the third chapter. So we're in chapter three. And it was there that God, through Peter and John, has miraculously healed a man who had been crippled from the time of his birth. But there was a purpose, remember, for the miraculous healing of this crippled man. Now listen, it was not just so that this man who had once been crippled may live out the rest of his earthly life in a relative state of comfort. It was not his purpose that he would be healed so that he could have better years toward the end of his life than he had toward the front of his life. Did you hear that? Very important for us to understand. The reason for this healing was not to bring a greater level of earthly fulfillment to the crippled man. That was not the point of the healing. And it certainly wasn't to bring a greater level of notoriety to Peter and John who laid their hands on the man, was it? 
We should not be, friends, surprised to hear that. We shouldn't be surprised to hear that that was not God's intent. We know that that's not how it works. We know that that's not God's intent because several times in the past, in the last few weeks, we've made note of Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 in which Peter said that Jesus was attested to you by God by his miracles. So in other words, what Peter told us is that God used miracles to apodeknumi, that is to show out or to show forth Jesus Christ. He used those miracles to show Jesus Jesus Christ as the one whose work was affirmed and approved by God. That was the point of the miracles of Jesus Christ. It was to tell the entire world that this is my son. This man is different. He has been sent from me. Now, as you know, Jesus ascended to the Father in Acts chapter 1. Most of you were here for that. And then, as he had done that, he told his disciples to go into Jerusalem and wait in the upper room of Mark's mother. And they waited there until the Holy Spirit would arrive. Then, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit showed up. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, just as he promised that he would. And once again, when the Holy Spirit arrived, there were attendant signs and miracles. When the Holy Spirit showed up in Acts chapter two, there were some miraculous signs. There were some miraculous events, friends, listen, which once again authenticated that the arrival of the Holy Spirit was from God. Okay? Because of those miracles, because all of the people had witnessed those things, thousands and thousands of people actually showed up to see what was going on. They heard the sound of the wind. They heard the sound of men who had never studied before speaking in languages they had never learned. And so they came running to see what was going on. When they did that, Peter then stood up and he preached what we called a quality sermon, which saw three thousand people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ that day. Three thousand people from one sermon. Now, Once again, here we are in Acts chapter 3, and we see the miraculous work of God. This man, this crippled man who had been sitting outside the beautiful gate, whose legs had never taken a step in his entire life, was suddenly up. He was running around. He was jumping around. He was doing all kinds of things that he had never been able to do before. Everyone saw it. Everyone knew that it was a miracle. Everyone knew that that was the same cripple who had been sitting outside the beautiful gate begging probably even for years. They had seen him day in and day out, and they knew that the man was a cripple. And so when they saw him jumping, when they saw him running, when they saw him walking, they knew that something extraordinary had happened, and they knew that something had happened at the hands of God you see that? Now listen, because of that miracle, because of the miracle of the lame man getting up and walking and all of the commotion that it caused, once again, there are thousands and thousands of people who begin to gather. They all come to see what was going on. How is it that this crippled man is up walking and running and carrying on? And so they all gathered around. In fact, there were so many people crowding in to see what was going on that they completely filled the large area known as Solomon's portico. They all crowded in. This is the place where John and Peter had gone after the healing of the man. And the Bible tells us that they were all, as they gathered around, they were utterly astounded. It means 
that they could not believe it. They were completely dumbfounded. The crippled man that they had seen all of these years was standing and he was walking on his own power. He was jumping, he was running, and he was holding on to Peter and John and he absolutely refused to let go of them. It was amazing. Nobody could believe what they had seen. And Peter's response to the crowd was to do what? It was to preach. And do you know how he preached? He preached the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he did. And friends, this is really important for us to to understand. Let's take a look at verse 12 here. And when Peter saw it, that is the group of people gathering, he addressed the people, and this is what he said. He said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety we have made this man walk? I think Peter makes an outstanding point here. As I've told you recently, prior to the ministry of Jesus Christ, there had not been a miracle in the land of Israel in over 400 years. No miracle had been recorded for over 400 years. But now think of it. When Jesus Christ showed up, as soon as he turned the water into wine in John chapter 2 in the land of Cana, miracles were happening everywhere. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people were healed at the hand of Jesus Christ. He had burst onto the scene and there were miracles absolutely everywhere and nobody disputed it because they couldn't. Because it had happened. It was a fact. There were that many people being healed. There were that many miracles happening. And I wonder, as this crowd gathered around Solomon's portico, how many of the people who were there had seen the miracles of Jesus Christ. Do you think some of them had seen His miracles? I bet they had. I mean, how many of those people who were there that day had been there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Do you think that's possible? I think it was. How many people do you think had seen the blind man regain his sight? You see, they recognized Jesus as someone who had come from God because He was performing all these miracles. That was the testimony of the religious leadership. And it hit its mark because that's exactly how God authenticated that Jesus Christ was from him, wasn't it? Isn't that how it happened? It was because of all of his miracles. Now look, when the Holy Spirit came onto the scene, God once again authenticated that the Holy Spirit was from God by the sound of the wind and the ability, the miraculous ability to speak foreign languages that they had never studied. Now based on that information, based on on that alone, Why would you be surprised to see God miraculously giving this man the use of his legs? After all of the things that had been happening over the last seven to eight weeks, not to mention the previous three years, why would you be surprised to see this man standing and running and leaping? Then I want you to take a look at the second question again. Knowing that God worked the miracles of Christ... Knowing that God worked the miracles of wind and languages on the day of Pentecost... What would make you think that we had anything to do with it? That's what Peter and John are saying. Knowing all of the other things that had happened, why would you think that we had anything to do with this man walking? And friends, listen, this is such an important observation for us to make. Listen to this. Peter and John were just a couple of fishermen from Galilee. Peter and John were nothing special. They were not eloquent of speech. They hadn't studied in the greatest Bible colleges. They hadn't studied in the world's finest seminaries. They didn't wear flashy suits with white sequins all over them. 
They were just the same guys that this group of people had seen coming and going at three o'clock in the afternoon, probably for years. They had seen them coming up to the temple every other day to pray. There was nothing special about them. And can I just tell you that that is almost always the case. Did you know that about the people that are used by God? Can you consider that for a few minutes? God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people to accomplish His purposes. He uses people just like you and me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low in the world and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being may have the ability to boast in the presence of God. He's the source of life. God is the source of life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, friends, listen, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see? Now listen, it is never the piety, it is never the power, and it is never the preaching of even the greatest preachers that ever effect the miracle of salvation. The preacher never affects the miracle of salvation. It is never the power of the preacher that ever affects healing. It is only the power of God by His healing virtue working in the name and on behalf of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? I think that we need to be very, very careful to remember that. Can I just tell you that we need to be careful to put the credit for miraculous activity where it belongs. It only belongs to God. We have to be careful that we don't say so-and-so over here was healed because he went to see that preacher over there and he prayed for him. Listen to me. If so-and-so was healed, it wasn't because of the preacher. If so-and-so was healed, it was because of the mercy and the power of God. Do you understand? Credit goes to God. Peter and John said, this man wasn't healed because of us. And these are guys that had walked with Jesus and were his closest friends for the last three years. And they said, even they said, his healing didn't happen because of us. He had nothing, it had nothing to do with our power. It had nothing to do with our own piety. And I want you to know that you can be sure that no other miracle of any sort, including the miracle of salvation or the miracle of healing, has ever occurred by the power or the piety of the preacher, no matter how great a guy he is personally. But Scott, Peter, and John looked at the cripple and he said, rise up and walk. So they were exercising the miraculous gift of healing. That's not what they were exercising. You want to see what they were exercising? Let's go back to verse 6 and take a look. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I will give to you. Now look at this. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. It's not because we commanded you to. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter said, I don't have any power at all, but Jesus Christ does. So he was appealing on the basis of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He was appealing purely on the the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what it means, friends, when we say the words in Jesus' name. That's what it means. So when you finish a prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, amen, you need to consider that. What you are saying is you are speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ himself. That's what it means when you say that. It means that you are speaking with full authority and power of Jesus Christ as his authorized representatives. That's what that means. It's as if you're saying if Jesus were standing right here right now, this is exactly what he would do, and I'm perfectly comfortable signing his name onto what I'm about to say. Do you understand that? We need to be very, very careful with that. And that's what Peter and John did with this man. It was not their power or authority that healed the guy. They're saying it was the power and authority of, of Jesus Christ that affected his healing. So Peter says, don't look at me. I didn't do it. Look at Jesus Christ. He's the one that did it. And I want you to know that that's the right model. That's the way that it should work. So I want to move on now to verse 13. And I want you to see another use for the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what it says. And we're just going to stop after the first portion. It says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant, Jesus Christ. So I just want to tell you that in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, you'll see it, but also in the Kings and Chronicles, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you ever seen that? You've, certainly you've seen that. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and Jacob. And devout Jews, like all of those who would have been present at the, at the portico of Solomon that day, would have recognized that form of address saying that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as a way of referring to the one true God. So when they said that, they knew that they were referring to the one true God. Now listen, for generations, the Jews had been anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They knew that he was the one that would establish a kingdom that would last forever. They knew that he was the one who would liberate them from the oppressive rule of all of the foreigners in their land. And they knew that his coming had been promised all through the Old Testament. Now listen, in many of those Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah was referred to as my servant. And you'll see that particularly in Isaiah 53 if you want to go back and take a look at that at some point. So the message that Peter was trying to give to the people that day was this. You have been waiting. You have been waiting for the promised servant. You have been waiting for the promised Messiah. And his name is Jesus. You see? Here he is, the servant, the Messiah. He is here, and his name is Jesus. He is the one you've been waiting for. He is the one who would come to save you. Peter says, Jesus is the servant that you've been expecting. He's the Messiah you've been waiting on. But Peter didn't just call him servant. He calls him the servant Jesus. So we see two more names here. Now it's interesting to me to know that the name Jesus actually comes from the Old Testament name Joshua. So Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And do you know what that means? It means salvation of the Lord. It means the Lord is salvation. You could even say that it means Jehovah, my Savior. Now listen, this is very important. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph when he came to announce that Mary would have a child? Do you remember that? I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 1. And it says this, Joseph, son of David, this is the angel speaking, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Jesus. Why is she going to call him Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name means. That's what the name Jesus means. So here is this nation of people waiting for the Messiah to arrive to save them. They were sure that Scripture had promised that he would come, but they misunderstood the Scripture. They misinterpreted the Scripture. They understood it to mean that He would save them politically, that He would save them from the oppression of foreign rule, that He would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And I do want you to know that He will do all of those things. That will happen. But at His first coming, He had to first come as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He had to come as the lowly and the rejected. And so they were looking for the one true Savior who would come in and liberate them. And here came this one who was rejected and despised. And yet, as he comes onto the scene, this one's name is Jesus. His name is Jehovah Savior. That's his name. He comes onto the scene and he says, hello, my name is Jehovah Savior. And accompanying that introduction are thousands and thousands and thousands of miracles. Things that can't be described as anything other than miraculous. And his name is Jehovah Savior. And God used those miracles to tell these people that yes, this is Jehovah Savior. This is the one who came to save. And did you know the leaders of religious systems acknowledged that? They knew it. They understood. They confessed themselves that this man comes from God because no one could do the things he's doing if God weren't with him. That's what the religious leaders said. No one has ever spoken like him. No one has ever had so much authority, they said. Thousands and thousands of people are following him everywhere he goes. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people were waving palm leaves as he came riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and they were all shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in complete fulfillment of scripture. Now I want you to look at what Peter says to them next. Here he is standing in Solomon's portico in front of thousands of people. Thousands of Jews. And Peter, the one who just a few weeks ago was afraid of a little girl, says this. He has absolutely no fear. The God of our fathers glorified His servant, Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he himself decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and we are witnesses of this. We saw it ourselves. If you can remember back to our time in the book of John, maybe you can remember the time that we spent talking about Pilate and the fact that Pilate didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Do you remember that? He didn't want anything to do with Him. He knew it. And he declared on many occasions that Jesus had not done anything wrong. That was the testimony of Pilate. Here's Pilate, this Roman who took a great deal of pride in his sense of justice. And he knew that the whole trial and the whole charge against Jesus Christ was a farce. He knew there was nothing to it, but they wouldn't let it go. They had Pilate backed into a corner, and they kept insisting that he would murder, that he would crucify Jesus Christ, and they wouldn't let him out. They kept pushing him, and they kept pushing him. 
They wanted Jesus to be crucified, and Pilate knew that he hadn't done anything deserving crucifixion. He knew that he was innocent. And so trying to get out of it, Pilate came up with his plan, and he decided to send Jesus across town to Herod's castle, and he would have Herod try him. When he arrived, Herod took a look at him, talked to him, asked him a few questions, and Herod himself decided there was nothing wrong with Jesus. And rather than making the action on his own, he sent him back to Pilate. Can you imagine Pilate's frustration when Jesus comes walking back and there's a message with him that says, I don't find anything wrong with the guy. So now Pilate returned to the people and he said, you know what? I know what I'll do. I'll scourge him and I'll beat him to a bloody mess. That'll make him happy. But you know, not even that made him happy, did it? It wasn't enough. They began to scream And they said, it's not enough to beat him to a bloody mess. We want him killed. We want you to crucify him. In verses 14 and 15, Peter tells his listeners that they had rejected the Holy and Righteous One. Do you see that? The Holy and Righteous One. And those again are two names for for Jesus which clearly identify Him as the Messiah. So I want you to understand that what Peter is doing here is he's really trying to drive home the point that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for. And the contrast here is absolutely striking. Here is the Messiah you've been asking for. Here is the Messiah whose name is Jehovah saves. Jehovah is salvation. He's here. He's performing miracles. This is your Messiah. And you know what you did to him? You killed him. I gave you the Messiah you've been asking for, and you handed him over and insisted that he be murdered. You could have had Jesus. You could have had the Messiah, the servant, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life which is to say that he was God. But you know who they wanted? They wanted a murderer. Pilate stood before him, and he said, you have a choice, Jews. You have a choice. You can either have the Messiah, the author of life, Jehovah's salvation, or you can have a taker of life, a murderer. And they chose to reject the author of life for a murderer. That was their choice. Choose right now which one you want. And they said, we'll take the murderer. And even though those events were all fresh in their mind, because they'd only happened eight weeks ago, seven weeks ago, even though those events were all fresh in their mind, Peter brings it up. And he reminds him of it. Was it because Peter was cruel? Was it because Peter was still angry about it? I don't think so. Can I tell you why I think Peter did it? Friends, it's important that we deal with the reality of sin. We can't preach grace, love, and forgiveness without first addressing sin and judgment and eternal death. That's why he did it. The sin of rejecting their Savior and handing him over to be wrongfully murdered was absolutely enormous. And Peter confronted them with it and said, this is what you've done. You see, the sin was that even though they had all seen the proof that Jesus was the Savior, even though His name was Savior, even though they had declared that He was from God, they still rejected Him. And I want you to know, friends, that's still the same problem that we have with sin today.
Listen, there are people who have seen and heard a lot of truth who continue to choose daily that they want death over the author of life. There are many people, and for years I was one of them, who'd grown up in a church where the correct message had been consistently and properly taught, who've seen lives transformed by the power of the miracle of salvation. They've seen the life and the love of Christ modeled for them, maybe in their parents or in the other people around them, and they are still rejecting Jesus Christ. There are people who have served in key positions of church leadership around the world who are still rejecting Jesus Christ. They've seen all the proof. And I want you to know that preaching that is done in Jesus' name must bring its hearers to confront the reality of sin. And it must bring its hearers to confront the reality of their rejection of Christ. And it must force them to see that as the ultimate sin, because it is. And when people begin to grasp that message, then, and only then, will the grace of God and forgiveness of sins, found only through believing in the name of Jesus Christ and through repentance, become incredibly sweet and incredibly precious. Friends, true preaching that is done in the name of Jesus Christ is not a sales pitch. People who are preaching in the name of Jesus Christ don't just stand up before a crowd of people and attempt to demonstrate the features, advantages, and benefits of coming to our church. That's not the point. True preaching is a command to repent. It's a command to be baptized and to live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life to the saving of your eternal souls. That's what's at stake here. Most preachers who preach that message are not going to be popular. It's not an attractive message. Nobody wants to hear that. I want to hear about grace and love and forgiveness. And be sure those things are found in the name of Jesus Christ. But not until you confess your sins and confront your own sinfulness may not be the most attractive message, but it's the most accurate message. Friends, we have to force people to choose whom they want. We have to force people to choose whether they want the author of life or the taker of life. That's what the Jews faced that day as Jesus was being crucified. And that's the point of preaching in Jesus' name. I'm reminded of God's instruction to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Lord says, See, I've set before you today life and good. I've set before you death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you. But on the other hand, if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not live long in the land. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today 
that I have set before you life and death. I've set before you blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and He is your length of days. Doesn't that really sum up the message of godly preaching? Friends, we have to choose. Do you choose to go all in on serving God? Do you choose to commit yourself to His Lordship? Do you choose to commit yourself completely to Him? If so, you can walk away from here this morning knowing there's blessing. There's blessing in that. And there's life in that choice. But friends, if you're here today and you're choosing to reject Him, if you're here today and you're choosing to turn away, if you're here today and you're asking for the taker of life, there's sorrow and there's death in that choice. But you have to choose. Those people that day chose the taker of life, didn't they? They said, give us Barabbas. Give us a murderer. Kill our Messiah. But in God's great mercy and in His grace, in His patience, and in His love, He continues to reach out to them and He continues to offer life and to offer healing. Verse 16 says, in His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. Friends, this is what I want you to take away from this morning. Every day, you face the choice of whom you will serve. You can't serve both. There are many people in this world who want it both ways. And I want you to know You can't have them both. You either choose the author of life or you choose the taker of life. And daily, He offers you fullness of life. Daily, He offers you healing for your spirit by faith in His name. Daily, He offers you restoration. Choose you this day, Root River Church, whom you will serve. And if you come back next week, I'm going to show you the grace and the blessing that are found in choosing the author of life. Father, I thank you for the kind attention of your people. I thank you for those who have made their way out through the weather today to come and to worship you and to be challenged by your word. Lord, if there are people here this morning who still have not chosen to fully commit themselves to the giver of life, I pray that you would make this the day that they have the courage and the strength to repent, to place their faith in Jesus Christ, and to receive blessing in life. If there are those who are here today who have seen all the miracles, they've seen the name of Jehovah Savior and they're trying to keep both the giver and the taker of life I pray Lord that this would be the day that you force them into a corner to make a choice 
And I ask God that you would grant it to them to commit themselves to you and to you alone. That's my greatest prayer for the people in this room, Lord. That they would know the blessing and the joy that comes with choosing daily to commit themselves to Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in Jesus' name.